Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickville and Caroline Diarty Edwards. This time of the year is the time that round one candidates, the eager beavers who applied to elite business schools very early, are getting answers. The answers they get, well, you could be invited to an admissions interview. That would be the ideal answer at this point. Or you could be deferred and put on a wait list uh, for further consideration in round two, or the awful outcome, you're rejected outright without even an interview. Two weeks ago, Harvard Business School put out their notices. And as it befits our day and age where people rush to the social media and report on every aspect of their life, well, of course, the people who were rejected <laughs> and some who were ex- uh, accepted to at least get an interview uh, went online and reported the results. One person dinged by Harvard said, trying to keep from bowling my eyes out at work today. Yes, it's sad, it's disappointing, it's frustrating, particularly after you put a lot of work into your application. But what struck me was the number of people with exceptional standardized test scores that were getting dinged. I'm just going to read you some quick reports here uh, that were put online on Reddit. 760 GMAT veteran. Ding. 770 pilot, dinged. 330 GRE vet with a 3.65 from an Ivy League university, dinged. Top 20 university army vet, 378 GPA, 337 GRE, dinged. 760 service academy grad, dinged. 770 GMAT, magna cum laude at Ivy League, dinged. Here's one that surprised me. 740 GMAT, 37 GPA, from a top five university, a first generation graduate with a low income background and a background in tech dinged. So obviously what we can't tell from any of these quick uh, descriptions of these disappointing results are what really, uh, what are these candidates really like? I mean, you know, a test score, you're not a test score, you're an actual person who graduated from an undergraduate institution, maybe it was highly selective or not. You have work experience, perhaps you have uh, significant achievements at work, you have extracurricular activities, uh, you have a GPA, in some cases we don't have a GPA, and you have short-term and post-MBA career goals, you have letters of recommendations, your essays, we have no clue about any of that which makes our guessing game as to why people, why these people and others get rejected. But there are general reasons why people who appear to be exceptional candidates do get turned down. And Caroline and Maria, of course, have worked with many people who get in and a good number of people who don't quite get into a Harvard or a Stanford, but get another really good choice. So Caroline, what separates the people who do get in from those who don't? Who gets rejected? And do you have any uh, reason at all to wonder why 750, 760, 77 GMATs who are military veterans could possibly be rejected without even an interview? So we're not even talking getting accepted or not. We're talking about not even being invited to an interview. How can that be? Yeah, it's very tough, as you say. It does look extremely unfair. But as you also said, there are so many different elements to an application and so many different elements that have been considered as part of a candidate's profile that without that full picture, 
it's difficult to judge, right? And, and there is an element of luck. These schools are so ridiculously competitive. And it depends on who is applying at the same time and, and who has a similar profile to you and whether or not they have something that gives them an edge over you. So it is, uh, there is an element of, of uh, you know, the lottery in applications to these very top schools. So I know it's very tough to get that rejection. And, you know, my heart goes out to those candidates who, as you say, you know, it's, 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 they've put their heart and soul into their applications and it's heartbreaking when it doesn't work out. But you've got to realize that you're in very good company, right? Lots of amazing people get rejected from these top schools and um, it's not the end of the story. You can still get into a fantastic program. You could apply to other schools. You can reapply next year. You know, we've had people who have applied three times to HBS and they finally (laughs) got in, right? Ah, ah. So, so it's not it's not the end of the story by any means. But there's a lot of there's so many different elements. I mean, you know, we talk about holistic um, review of of the application, and there's there's so many different parts to that. So, I, I think you know, candidates can try to t- take a step back and reflect on whether they have any sense for whether there might have been aspects of their application that may not have been so competitive. It can also be helpful to get feedback from a third party right someone who can look at it with fresh eyes and and give you some feedback on whether they have any sense of where you might have compared less favorably on which elements but for sure I mean a strong GMAT does not guarantee getting interviewed at, at a top school right I mean there are plenty of people with with stellar GMATs and you know I can remember turning people away from INSEAD with with 800 right it's just if that's sometimes they're overconfident in the process and they're not bringing enough in other dimensions. Um, And there are, you know, there's more to an academic profile for a start than a GMAT. And then there's all of the professional experience and that's absolutely critical, right? You're not going to get into a top business school just because you've got an amazing academic profile but you're not also, you know, someone who has really, really proven themselves and is on a very strong, fast track professionally. And then beyond that, right, you can you can be amazing on those dimensions and the school might think, well, you know, you're not a great fit for this program, right? Maybe there is some element where they think, you know, you are not, this is not the best school for you or perhaps they see you as someone who is very focused on your career, but you haven't done much outside of work. And therefore, they have doubts about whether you'll contribute to the community beyond the, the academic experience and, and um, careers. You know, they're looking for people who are going to contribute to the school across a lot of different dimensions. So that is all important as well. Um, so there's just there's so many pieces to the puzzle. But, you know, I, I would encourage candidates to take a step back, reflect, and then, you know, think about your plan B. You can't put all of your eggs in the basket of Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton, unfortunately. (laughs) That's so true. And it's worth noting that last year, the acceptance rate at Harvard was 9.5%. Nearly 7,500 applicants out of uh, fewer than 8,300 were rejected. And you got to know that a high percentage of those are people who are fully qualified to get in 
would likely do very well in the MBA program, would land a great job and be very successful because that's how self-selecting and elite the applicant pool is at a Harvard Business School, at NCIA, London, a Stanford, or Wharton, and other top schools. Maria, why do you think so many high GMATs with, with veterans, no less? Because, you know, I, veterans have had a lot of success in um, in these programs. In a lot of schools aim to get veterans in. They tend to be more mature. Um, they're well-liked by the consulting firms. What do you, what do you make it? I mean, I rarely actually see this many 750-plus GMAT scores from veterans and this many rejections. Well, I, yeah, in general, I think I sometimes I sometimes wonder if, if folks think that the admissions committees ask for things like resumes and recommendations and essays and interviews just because they've got nothing better to do, or is it that they have an actual reason to want to get to know who someone is on a pretty robust level? And so, you know, if it were just about the GMAT score and, and clicking a box of, oh, where were you working? I was working at Amazon. I was working in, in the army. I was then admissions officers wouldn't have much of a job to do because you would just know within two seconds if you're getting in or not. So when we, you know, I think Caroline and I have have been saying over and over again that until we're blue in the face, that it is truly a holistic, a holistic process. For me, the academic portion, you know, I, I talk to people about this sort of hierarchy of needs, right? So that there's a you know, yes, there are all these different things that matter, right? Your academics matter and your job performance matters and your leadership, but they don't all matter in the same way. So academics is the first hurdle that you need to cross as an applicant. But once you cross it, it's like, okay, we, we're going to focus on so many other things. So if you can't cross the academic hurdle, you know, if, if I truly believe that someone's just going to flunk out of a program, then it's not worth spending anyone's time on lending them further. But if somebody can handle it academically, now my focus shifts towards a hundred other, well, maybe not a hundred, but to many other things. And so for me, that academic hurdle is the first hurdle, but it's also a hurdle that doesn't matter as much. If you if you squeak over the top of that hurdle by like a millimeter uh, <laughs> or if you sail over it by a mile, I don't know that that part is what matters quite as much. You just need to prove that you can do the work. And then once I, I'm confident that you can do the work, now my focus is going to really shift to other details within your application. So you were asking me specifically about you know, military members and, and veterans who with very high scores. Well, for starters, it's I think the number of veterans applying is going up and up every year. Thanks so much to what nonprofits like Service to School are doing, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Right. But then the challenge then is for military members. Now the bar is getting higher because now, you know, maybe 20 years ago, there were only three fighter pilots applying. And now there might be 40 fighter pilots applying. So within now within that bucket, how do you stand within that bucket? And if somebody says, I mean, I've been in the military for five years, that could mean so many different things. That could be somebody, you know, leading, uh, leading people into literally leading people into battle. Or it could be that they were, you know, trying to make sure that the, I don't know, the where had the munitions were all in stock. And, you know, making sure that the, the things were all, the vehicles were all repaired. No, I've seen, I've seen so many different, you know, responsibilities across military resumes over the years. And so look, somebody who's led a group of people into battle and someone who is responsible for making sure that the equipment is well oiled and working, you know, there, there are di pretty different, uh, it's a, it's a pretty different 
gap in terms of the leadership that's been demonstrated. So simply knowing that someone was in the military and has a 760 GMAT doesn't really tell me or any of us enough uh, to, to sort of be shocked one way or the other. Yeah, that's really true. Now, I, I bet that both of you over the years have had candidates that you thought, oh, my God, there's no question that they're going to at least get interviewed. And then surprise, surprise, they don't. And then there are other candidates who you think, okay, I'm going to give it my best shot, but I know the odds are against this person. And I'm doubtful they'll get in and get the interview at least. And then they surprise you and they get in. How does that happen, Caroline? (laughs) Well, I mean, it comes back to it being a competitive pool and only the admissions committee can see who you're being compared against as a candidate. So we can comment on somebody's individual merits, but we can't comment on how they compare to the, the individuals who have applied at the same time. And so, you know, that's always an important factor, especially at these schools, as you say, where, you know, the stats are quite terrifying in terms of the number of people that they're turning away. You know, I would say, you know, some of the ones where I have been frustrated, I can think of some candidates who just fascinating profiles, wonderful professional experience, but, you know, maybe their GPA wasn't so great or the GMAT wasn't so great, but you really, you know, you love them as an individual and you know that they're going to be so successful in the future and you just really want them to get into that top score and you you want the school to take a chance on them. And just sometimes it doesn't work out, right? And sometimes it does come back to those academic statistics that Maria mentioned, even though, you know, the candidate brings so much more to the table. And, and that, that can be very disappointing and frustrating. So, you know, sometimes it does come down to something as simple as that. But it really does depend on, you know, who else is applying and the timing and you know, as we said, there's so many different criteria that the admissions committee will be will be assessing. That uh, you know, it, it you it, it's and it's very rarely just one factor that will swing the decision in one direction or another. Yeah, and, and as you point out, it's really there are invisible things in the process that you can't judge. For example, uh, you are everyone is part of a, a sub segment competing with others. And more often than not, it comes out to, hey, I like this candidate better than that one. And we can only take this many candidates who are military veterans or this many candidates who are consultants or investment bankers or product managers at tech companies or nonprofit types or NGOs. And we just happen to like this one a little bit better than the other one, even though there's really nothing wrong with the other one. And I think that happens too. You know, um, what's interesting when you read the social posts of people who've been rejected is the angst and the uh, frustration, which is understandable, but also the the outright, I can't believe that I was rejected. I don't understand it. And then you get someone like, uh, here's a 730 GMAT, 3.4 from what the candidate said was a random state university who was a, me- a Marine infantry officer. He got an interview. So people online asked him, well, how in the world, what made the difference do you think? He said, I had very strong letters of recommendation and I've been number one ranked in several units I've been in. Otherwise, I've been a typical grunt in charge of 50 to 500 people with a couple deployments, one to the Middle East. 
I have several good ECs once my schedule settled down and I spent a lot of time on my essay. Not sure that that completely answers the question, but it gives some insight, I think. Maria, how about you? When have you been fooled and frustrated with your own candidates? Well, just to go back to that person for a second, they said they were an, an infantry officer, which I think means that they were literally people leading others into battle, which is, I think I just said a few minutes ago, like that's the sort of thing that Harvard likes to see. <laughs> yes, so yes. I'm actually not surprised. So I, even, I, though, I, even though they're from, they're from a state public university and they, they have a 3-4, 730 GMAT is 40, 50 points okay. below others. Bingo. It's, it's because it's it's the hurdle. And if you picture a hurdle, it's the academic hurdle. It doesn't matter if you squeak over it by a little bit or you sail over it like so high. I cannot, you're so high in space. I can't even see you. That's how high above the hurdle. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Someone with a 730, can they do the work at Harvard Business School? Probably. Can they do well in the, in the case environment? That's what the interview is going to tell me. But right. if I'm talking to someone, if somebody's like, writing an essay about, you know, I worked with someone in the military um, a year or two ago who like literally had to like jump out of a helicopter to rescue someone who was in the water, like stuff like, like you're like, and then somebody else is also in the military and thank everyone for their service. But that other person is like, well, I had an, you know, a, an, an inventory management system to make sure that, you know, we were, we were ordering the right supplies on time. That's great. Awesome. Everything's important. But in terms of raw leadership, the person the person who jumped out of the helicopter has had the opportunity to demonstrate more of that leadership so sure. you know in 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 that situation i just you know i don't know i <laughs> i i'm actually not surprised like, oh i'm just i'm just a regular guy who's led 50 to 100 people in a battle like when you were saying that, i'm like that's amazing do you know how i mean that's so hard to do that really um, yeah and, and so inevitably, think, and we're talking about not just people, we're talking about the diverse people and and making sure you're you're helping them motivate them to face, let's face it, I yes. mean the most dangerous situation you can face in life. <laughs> Seriously, like you know, if, if someone can convince someone to potentially follow behind me, you might get shot to death or you might die. How much, you know, if that person goes into the corporate world and is like, hey, okay, I, I need that presentation by Friday at five. Guess what? Like it's, it's gonna, they're not gonna, they're not gonna struggle as much as perhaps other people do, in terms of exhibiting leadership in the corporate world. So, you know, something like that, I am not, I am not surprised. You, when we were talking a little bit about a second ago of like, well, what are some of the things that might have done these people in right? People who right. at first glance, you're like, this is perfect. This candidate, like, there's nothing wrong here. I, I think Caroline might have touched upon this a little bit, but first of all, I think anything resembling a sense of entitlement. You know, if you get a 760 and you're from the military and you spend a lot of time on some of these message boards, which I don't think you should do, people will pat you on the back and high five you and say, you are it. Oh, my, you are golden. And so if you think if you walk into the process thinking I'm golden, then my re my essay is going to be all about like, here is an here is an examination of how golden is Maria. Maria is so golden. Here's 900 words about how golden I am. And that's going to totally strike the wrong tone. Or another mistake I see people make is two people might have, let's say, hypothetically, they have identical experiences, identical everything. But one person in the essay describes what they did on like a shallow level, right? I was in charge of the project. I called the meeting. I made sure that the team stayed on track. And the other person, however, describes their exact same experience, but they go into uh, the emotional insights that they had in convincing someone, right? Someone on the team wasn't responding to my proposal. The client didn't like my proposal. So what did I do about it? How did I use my emotional intelligence to drive that project forward? 
even if those two people have identical resumes, the one who demonstrates the sort of emotional maturity behind how they were able to get something to happen, that person is more, much more likely to get an interview versus someone who's just like, well, you know, I put together the project, like, you know, I, I, I have, I have a lot of tips for the Harvard Business School essay, but you know, one of them is like, tell me the story behind the bullet point. Don't just rewrite the bullet point. So the bullet point was, I led a project to do whatever. I can guess as a moderately educated person that if you're leading a project, that includes things like setting meetings, having a project plan, coming up, you're making sure that everyone is on time to the, with the deliverables. So that's assumed. But what I don't know was that, you know, I don't know, your boss threatened to fire you the day before the one, you know, you had to scramble to catch someone was in an accident, like those sorts of <laughs> those sorts of hidden stories that show that really proved to me that you have leadership to, you know, to, to, to inspire people or to motivate people or to change people's minds. Those are the details. So I think sometimes people might not focus on the right details. So even if they had amazing experience, maybe they just didn't describe it well enough within the essay. And that also brings it to life as well, right? So you've got to remember that the admissions reader is plowing through dozens of applications at a time. And if you can tell a story, as Maria said, that really brings it to life and jumps off the page, then you're going to make a much bigger impression than someone who just sort of regurgitates the facts that were already on the resume. That's really true. Uh, the, the other thing is there are, because there's so many international applicants, it's worth noting that in many other cultures, high test scores, high grades immediately grant you admission uh, mm -hmm. to uh, their home country institutions. And really the game is uh, to score well on a standardized test and to do well uh, mm -hmm. with your grades. And, and the story ends there. But that is really not true in business school admissions mm -hmm. at the highest level. And it's a very big difference. And it's a difference that's seldom understood, particularly by many international applicants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very tough because if you don't come from that culture, you may not have that background and history of engagement in extracurriculars that a lot of North American candidates would, would have had since they were sort of five years old, right? So it's, uh, it's often a big challenge. And that also, that, also shows up in, that also shows up in the essays as well. So for example, if you're talking about like an accomplishment, someone from one of those cultures might be more likely to say, well, one of my greatest accomplishments ever was that I came in first place in my city for a chess tournament, or I took the standardized test and I was in the top 1% of scorers in my country on this particular entrance exam. And so what a wasted opportunity, because that's not according to like the sort of MBA definition of leadership. That's not really, that's not really an, it's an accomplishment in terms of like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. you had to work hard, but it's not a leadership accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And so that's another mistake that I think people make is that they focus on the wrong, they either have the right accomplishment, but they don't describe it well, or they don't have they, they focus on describing something that they think is going to impress the admissions officer, but it's, it's not. Yeah, right. So I'll go back to, you know, a, a lyric that Sinatra sang. Uh, he said, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. And, and there was one really clearly exasperated candidate who went online. And after reading all these reports, these disappointing results said, you know, ding, ding, ding. I made 10 plus drafts of my essay. I worked closely with extremely helpful alumni. I read and reread my application. I regret nothing. But I got NCOD, so that's good consolation. But chin up, ding squad. We're relentless and we'll make adcoms regret not admitting us sooner. 
Uh, I don't know how Caroline feels about that other one. Yeah, no, I'm not thrilled. It's the, the consolation prize, but uh, anyway. <laughs> it's, more the it's the revenge mindset that sort of is like, whoa, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make them sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, great. Cool. You seem nice. Hey, sometimes revenge can be great motivation for some people. Hey, you know, it's really true. Well, there you have it. Look, if if uh, if you struck out um, on one or two or even three round one applications, there is round two. There are many great schools out there, many great MBA programs uh, that would allow you to achieve your dreams and your ambitions. Pick yourself up, <laughs> dust yourself off and start all over again because it happens. Like Caroline mentioned, there are people that she has worked with who applied to Harvard three times got in the third time, was a charm. I got to wonder, you know, in terms of reapplying, well, what new stories they had to tell them, something new in, in their backgrounds and their application to warrant an admin, I would imagine. Right, Caroline? Yeah, you've definitely got to show evolution and show how that, you know, the significant pro progression in your profile. You can't just reapply with the, the same old story. And when you reapply, do you actually say, you know, I applied last year and I was rejected, but now I understand why. And this is what I've done as a result. It, it, or you just you ignore the fact that you you applied earlier. You don't want them thinking that they already rejected you. What's your what's your well, they know, right? Everybody knows, right? The school knows that um, you're a reapplicant. It's, um, it, it, they, you know, they keep they keep they keep they keep track of that. So. So they will know. So you can't sort of pretend that you're a, a new applicant and they've never seen you before. That's not going to work. But then do you address uh, it directly? Well, right so, so, I mean, there's different ways of doing it, but you do need to show that you have learned something from the process that you've reflected and that you are coming back as a more mature and more valuable addition to the program. And so it's good to show that, you have some understanding of why you were not the great candidate or for HBS or GSB or INSEAD or wherever it is last time round and how you have been proactive in addressing that. Of course, Caroline just strolled into INSEAD, was never rejected, never had to reapply. Same is true of Maria at Harvard Business School. You know, they, they just rolled out the red carpet for both of you. <laughs> yeah, we've never failed at anything, Maria. Uh, Right. They rolled out the red. They rolled out the red carpet once I paid that tuition deposit. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Hey, good luck to you. And if you did get a disappointing result, uh, we feel for you. But know that there are plenty of other schools out there. And you know, if you, if you got what it takes, you're going to get in. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. 